Hi, I'm Alison. Welcome to Dream Chasers Adventures in Happiness, where my band of superhero guests and I share with you tales of daring do, life-changing journeys towards living our best lives. If you're after an injection of inspiration and ideas to live the life that you want and deserve, you're in the right place. Let's dive in. Hi there, and welcome to the show where we serve up conversation, ideas, and belief that it really is possible to identify and go after what you most desire from a career or lifestyle point of view. I'm your host, Alison O'Leary, and today I'm joined by a fabulous guest with a really fascinating story. Samantha Day spent 30 years working as a tax accountant in the City of London before making a career change that couldn't really be more polarised In her early 50s, she embarked on a transition from accounting to stand-up comedy, turning a very new hobby into a real job that she earns a living from. Now, in the four years she's been at it, she's won numerous comedy awards, is regularly gigging around the country, and she's had two really successful runs at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Today, we're going to delve into how she's done it, both from a practical and psychological point of view. So welcome to the show, Samantha. Thank you for having me. Hello. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on. We've got loads and loads of nuggets. I know it's going to be so useful to share with people. Yes. To kick things off, like, so you've done what I think most people would assume is completely impossible, making the kind of change that you've made. So can we start by getting you to talk a bit about how did you come to the decision to swap accounting for stand-up comedy okay so I guess I was quite senior and I sound like I'm showing off and I think it might be because (laughs) I am I was quite senior Alison so by the time I left my job I wasn't really doing that much accounting you know what it's like the better you are at something the less you do the less you do so they (laughs) so they promoted me and I was sort of head of tax for London and the southeast running this huge team and this huge budget and I didn't really do so the things that I joined the profession for, you know, I'm a bit of a mathmo. Yeah. I quite like maths. I love working out what motivates people, clients and, and team. So I had a really good time there. But mm. what happens when you go up an organisation and you become senior? Politics happens. <laughs> and you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. You know, people go, oh, I, 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 I avoid all politics. Well, you don't. No, you, you don't. don't. You no. may get left behind whilst you're avoiding it because other people are very much into it. <laughs> yeah, it got to the point where I kind of thought, oh, 30 years, quite a long time. And I am inside a bit of a show off. And I'd used <laughs> every, <laughs> well, I'd used every opportunity because obviously when you are sort of in a reasonably senior position, you do get to do a bit of public speaking and showing mm. off a bit of leadership, all that. And I loved all that. And I loved it far more than any of the actual job. And that's a bit right. of a problem because people mm-hmm. do eventually notice. <laughs> and uh, it, yeah, it got to the point where I just didn't fit in there anymore. And I just did this stand-up comedy course as a hobby to kind of mm. relieve the, not the boredom exactly, but the sameness, I suppose, yeah. after 30 years. And the other thing was real life, of course, because when I was younger, I was a single mum, I had three children, and I was the breadwinner. And I didn't really have, I didn't feel 
That's mm. not true. I didn't feel I had the freedom to choose a job okay. which wouldn't necessarily pay for quite a while. Yeah. I wish I had. I wish I'd chosen something closer to what I'm doing now then, but I mm. didn't. And when the last one left university, I just thought, I don't actually need to provide for, for others anymore. And I'm yeah. actually, as an individual, quite cheap to run. <laughs> <laughs> If you if if you take out the Botox, which is very expensive, but take put that to one side. Put that to one side. <laughs> I'm quite cheap to run. So I thought, you know what, I'll I'll, um, I'll try this hobby and I'll see where it goes. And actually, mm. it was a matter of months, like less than six months between that course and me throwing the towel in completely in the corporate world. Wow. Okay, so, I mean, that's amazing. So you took this up as a hobby to kind of relieve some of the, not quite boredom, but sameness of the job and to just, and to, to step more into some of the things you actually really liked that, yeah. that, you know, technically weren't meant to be the major part of your job. So you start doing this course. What was it that drew you in? Or like, what was it that made you kind of go, this is the thing? Well, I told you, didn't I, that I did your course as a kind of double yeah. check after the after the original. Before I did the leap, I just thought, oh, let's just double check that you're not absolutely mental. <laughs> so you did my Work Wonderland online course. I did Work Wonderland, yeah. But, um, and just just for just for listeners, this, I have an online course that is a sort of mirror of the one to one coaching I do that is designed to help people get really clear about what the right ideal career role path is and so and I heard about you actually because somebody had booked a consultation call with me and I always ask people how they've heard about me and she, she started off her story by saying well I was in the park and I met a woman walking her dog <laughs> and I was like okay <laughs> and she said and I got talk we got talking and I was telling her about how I just wasn't happy at work and I just really wanted to make change didn't know what and she told me about your online course and so and then she told me your story which is how we came to know one another <laughs> yeah but yes so sorry so yeah so that so you took the course as what well, as, as a to, as to a, just be a, doubly sure yeah yeah because I didn't want to make a second false move Mm. Not that accountancy was an entirely false move. It wasn't really because it did provide what my children needed. I think it was when I stepped off the stage of the... So what happens if you go on a comedy course, most of them are structured where you do sort of six weeks of learning the basics of how to write a joke and how to hold mm. a microphone. And then if you want to, at the last week, you can take part in like a showcase, they call it. And you invite okay. your friends and they're very kind and nice and laugh at all of your jokes, no matter how shit they are. And uh, I came off that stage and just thought, oh, my God. You know, I feel like a different person because wow. I'd always enjoyed like the, you know, the stagey stuff, you know, mm. but it had been things like budget presentations and stuff, which I did manage to slide some <laughs> jokes into under the radar, <laughs> did. if I'm totally honest. Uh, not some of them related to the rates of tax. So God knows there are people out there <laughs> to whom I probably owe a lot of money. But anyway... Most of them weren't about the technical detail. Mm. They were about other things. But, yeah, I felt like I'd rinsed out every opportunity to kind of show off at work. And this felt like, oh, my God, what if I could show off all the time? 
and be paid for it. And actually, it's not just, you know, I'm being flippant because writing jokes and writing routines is really quite technical. Mm. It's not as far removed as you might imagine from something mathematical. There's a oh, certain logic to it and yeah. structure. There are rules. And obviously, there's a huge amount of artistry as well because it's mm. the emotion and the and the physical embodiment of your act which brings it to life but you still need some nice strong writing underneath it so that appealed to me as well because I didn't really know that before I did the course I sort of thought you were funny or you weren't funny I thought it was kind of magic or something oh there's like a okay yeah I suppose it would be there's a kind of a lot an underlying logic or kind of process to it as, as well as the artistry that was layered on the top yeah yeah so you were sort of drawing on skills from your old career in a very on you like like in a way that I guess most people wouldn't imagine. Yeah, I guess so. And also just mm. being brave because most of the time when I climbed the corporate ladder, I didn't really know what how to do the next job. Or yeah. I'd take on a client that was a bit bigger than anything we'd worked on before and but I'd kind of go, you know, how hard can it be? It's the same, only with a zero on the end. It'll be fine. And then afterwards, I'd panic and I'd yeah. struggle to get myself together. But So I'd sort of been through that barrier of kind of, you know, it's only yeah. humiliation, just give yeah. it a go. And I had humiliated myself loads of times at work as well. So I'd sort of crashed through that pain barrier. <laughs> so let's talk about this because this is interesting. And I think this is a really important point. So I want to talk about bravery and courage because obviously like it's one thing to know what it is you want to do. And it's entirely another to step into it. And particularly mm. when you consider what stand up requires, like, that's a, like another level again. And we've talked about, you've got two perspectives around kind of courage and, and being brave that I think are really insightful, that people could really learn something from if they're thinking about making a change, you know, whether that's personally or professionally. So let's talk about those two things. I think one, one of them was around like beginner's mind or like for, like enjoying mm. being mm. totally rubbish at something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm paraphrasing. You t- tell, tell, tell us more. Well, I just think that when you get into an established career that you've been Mm. doing a long time obviously stuff comes along that's a bit tricky and hard to handle but you kind of know from experience however tricky and hard to handle it is you'll sort of find a way through and it'll all be resolved fairly swiftly and or fairly slowly but you won't you won't lose your mind over it Mm. hopefully Although I do know some auditors that lost their mind and I don't I don't blame them. That is a horrible place <laughs> to be right now. But that aside, you know, I think the more you develop competency, the easier your life becomes because things become less terrifying if you're familiar yeah. with them. The downside to that is where's the adrenaline? Where's the fun? Where's the playful, childish you that mm. went into that work because you thought it would be exciting? Yeah. So when I started stand-up, I just realised, oh, my God, I'm, like, wildly incompetent. I really don't know what I'm doing. And also, everyone's watching. Because if you learn the violin, <laughs> yeah, you can, you can, you can do it quietly in the back room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you know, you can terrorise your neighbours with it. And then when you're ready, you can take it out into the public and do a recital. But stand-up, yeah. you only know if it works if you've tested it in front of an audience. So you have to be incompetent in front of others all the time. And I actually was surprised how 
liberating it felt to go, do you know what? I, I'm the beginner in this room. I'm the, I'm the new one. I'm the one that doesn't know anything. Yeah. Because I'd spent years going to other people, you know, don't worry, I've got your back. I've been doing this a long time. I will look after you. Yeah. And it's just nice not to have to... It's, I, I love this because this is not what most people would think about, you know, because most people, I think, would think about how terrifying it would be, to, particularly when you've been in a role for a long time and, you, like you said, you are the expert, you know what you're doing and it's sort of water of a duck's back. The idea of stepping in, stepping into something that is completely new, where you're going to be a total beginner and probably fail an awful lot, is like the worst idea in the world, I think, to most people. Like we avoid it as human beings. Our brains are like, ooh, no, let's just not go there. Mm. But thinking about it that way and like, and how if you apply a sort of beginner's mind to it, like a childlike wonder and, and you look for the yeah. curiosity and the entertainment and the interest and the joy in just trying new things and, and seeing it as an adventure turns that totally on its head. It does, and you kind of feel like, you know, when you see a kid experience a puddle for the first time, and they're, like, <laughs> yeah. splashing in it, and then they're splashing yeah. in it more, because they can't quite believe that oh, this water's jumping out jumping. off the pond into their boot. This is incredible. And it feels yeah. a bit like that. I always think of it like, you know, like the first time I rode a bike down a hill, like, like with your legs hanging, flying out, and yeah. you're sort of like completely out of control, but you're just zooming down and hoping you're still in one piece at the end. Yeah. It's that, it's that kind of feeling. So yeah. you really latched it's onto thrilling. that kind of, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think that's a yeah. really important point. So yeah. the other thing you mentioned earlier was this thing around humiliation. Tell, like, uh, there's a story to this. Tell us a bit more. Humiliation. If you died of humiliation, Liz Trust wouldn't still be bothering us with her stuff, <laughs> would she? So, I mean... <laughs> You don't <laughs> die of humiliation. Nobody does. And once you've been sort of, once you've sort of said, okay, well, that's pretty humiliating to get on a stage and have people not laugh when you're going, I think this is funny. And they're yeah. looking at you like, we don't. <laughs> it is a bit humiliating, but it is just humiliation. Like you can choose what you do with it. Like you could, if you want, just kind of discard it and move on which is yeah a nice thing to be able to do because we all have shame about things we've messed up in the past even if they haven't been public yeah but particularly if they have and I think it it, it means that we feel like oh I don't fancy any more shame that didn't feel <laughs> great but if you change your mindset towards humiliation, I mean, the way it was put to me by a guy who used to, well, I think he just still direct Michael McIntyre, his name is John Gordillo. He said to me, it's in preparation. So if before you go on stage, in, you know, you should know your set, you've got the work, yeah. so don't worry about that, you've done that bit. Now it's to think... I'm going to really enjoy this. If this is a car crash, it's going to be the best car crash I've ever had. It's going to be the most fun of all car crashes. <laughs> and that mindset of kind of, I've chosen this and now I'm going to bloody well enjoy it is a really valuable one because you can apply it to your life as well as your yeah. work. Yeah. Again, fascinating perspective because most, I think, you know, me included, go humiliation want to run a million miles away from that that does not feel good but but mm. again like you said actually it's part it is you know, no matter what it is people are making a change to there's always going to be something I mean whether it's humiliation or it's it's 
failing in some shape or form or it's mm. sort of stumbling over things, it's going to happen because that's life and you don't learn unless you get it wrong <laughs> many times over usually. So to look yeah. at it and go, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to know all out and it'll be, like I said, a car crash <laughs> of, of a show if, it, if, if it's going to be anything and just try and engage with that and enjoy that as a... Yeah, and I think most people, you know, we don't like getting things. We don't like being wrong. Who likes being wrong? I know I don't. Um, we don't like failing. We don't like being embarrassed. But if we avoid all of those things all of the time, mm. then really the only things we can engage with are things we already know we can do. Yeah, yeah. And then there's like that whole lack of yeah, like wonder and curiosity and excitement that comes yeah, from stuff. We've only got is... one life, haven't we? So yeah. to do the same thing for the entirety of it doesn't suit everyone. Mm -mm. I kind of no. think of life in summers. You know, I'm 55 now and I think, well, if I'm really lucky, I might have 30 more summers. You know, yeah. I want them to be... I want them to Awesome be... ones. <laughs> yeah, great yeah. summers. Yeah, doing new stuff. I love it. I love it. Okay, so... So you knew you wanted to be a stand-up comedian and, mm -hmm. you know, you've got some really kind of positive ways of dealing with the unknown, with, with, with failure and humiliation. Can you talk a little bit about how you got started? Like, did you have a plan? How did you step into a brand new career path that was a million miles away from what you had been doing? Like, where did you begin? Well, I think when people make change, there's always a bit of push. So they're moving towards pleasure and away from pain, aren't they? Mm. So there's always a bit of push and a bit of pull. And there was for me. So there were things happening in my work, my existing work life that just weren't good for me. Mm. And there were things about stand-up that I felt I should do before I die. You know, they, they felt so much part of who I am that I yeah. should I should give it a proper go but you're right once you've sort of decided that you do need a bit of a I did have a plan I had quite a a sort of structured plan if you like and one of the things I really liked about the end of the work wonderland thing was the bit at the end where you say okay so what's the first step and what do you mm. do after that so that it doesn't feel too big because actually yeah. you know if you if you decided oh well I want to be the next Michael McIntyre well bloody hell where do you it feels start like a mountain that? yeah an impossible <laughs> mountain to climb absolutely <laughs> But if you think, well, I want to become someone who really understands how to write jokes, how to deliver comedy, how to keep mm. an audience happy and entertained and how to produce thoughtful art that's going to, um, that I'm going to be proud of, yeah. you know, then that seems like something that's actually more within your control. It's not about getting yeah. on telly or something that other person might keep the gate to. Yeah. It's about becoming good at something mm. using a process so yeah I mean most comedians start with as I did going to open mic nights which are pretty horrific to be I honest with you but you know Not something I would personally want to do <laughs> not least because I'm like the least funny person on earth but anyway <laughs> well no I don't think you are actually I think I've already worked for her but I <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think 
Although, you know, the open mics and the sort of low-level comedy scene is tricky because it's, you know, tends to be in venues that aren't necessarily brilliant Mm. for comedy with audiences that are a bit drunk or reluctant or whatever. Actually, it's also very low stakes for the exact same reason. Okay. so Yeah, I suppose so. I did lots of that sort of thing and just wrote, I went on a few more courses because each of the comics that teach them has quite different perspective and and it's a bit like anything you get loads of advice and you just take the bits that that you believe are actionable for you yeah Yeah. but most of it is just doing it so stage time is pretty much everything because you just get better by doing yeah so and you now, you, you built it down. You you did like a baby steps plan, and this this you know like so because it is again it's within the course, but it's I, I I do this with clients a lot, like the breaking down some mega what feels like a mega goal into something really small that just feels doable. Because if you keep taking mm. really tiny baby steps, you build momentum. Whereas if you think about the massive end goal, it tends to paralyze people, and then you don't take any steps at all, and then nothing happens. So yeah. you started taking steps, but then I know that. Not long after that, COVID hit. Yeah. And COVID so then was really what? interesting. Mm. Because, well, what I did was most comedians will tell you online gigs are horrific to do because of not getting much feedback. Yeah. You, know, you don't really know what's landing and what isn't. But actually for me, because I really lacked confidence in what I was doing, so I wasn't really selling my jokes, if you know mm. what I mean. I wasn't really convicted when I was saying them yeah and then COVID came and most people didn't do much at all for about a year or 18 months something like that okay the comedy so it just sort of shut down died yeah totally because you couldn't get yeah, up on stage the theater, yeah and you know all the theatres and venues shut down cause yeah even when once they were open social distancing made a lot of them a unviable financially oh, yeah. and b not really a comedy vibe because comedy is no. all about <laughs> collective enjoyment. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, a lot of people just did nothing. I did a show every week of my own. It was called Live in the Time of Corona. I did it with two friends yeah. every week online. And actually, we created this little community. It wasn't just comedy. It was poetry, music, and other stuff as well. Mm. But I was the compare, and it made me write something new every week. We did 65 episodes, which tells you how long wow. COVID lasted for. Because we one a week. Actually, that was really good for me. Because then when we came out of COVID into actual real-life people and audiences, mm. it felt so easy. <laughs> I can hear laughter. I am emboldened. <laughs> Amazing. So you literally, the comedy industry shut down, but you were like, no, I'm going to do something. You, you kick this off. You set off. Well, I you kick this off with some friends. Yeah. And, and, and just started. But so you were consistently writing material, new material every single week. And then yeah. getting to practice it with no yeah. real idea about what was landing or not beyond yeah. and a who came to this idea. like was it was it did it start off was it just like family and friends <laughs> yeah. yeah started off it was just family and friends but then what tended to happen was people would hear about it because there were so few opportunities to play your music or 
whatever, people would hear about it. They'd ask to come. And, and of course, every time someone new came on, some of their friends wanted to watch. Oh, and then wow. they often would stay and watch the next and the, the next, next and the next. So we, yeah. we built up this community. I reckon it was about 60 people. And then each week there'd be sort of 30 to 40 actually in the audience. Incredible. Out of this pool of about 60. But... After COVID finished, one of the poets in the group, who was one of the friends, it was his actual idea. I always say it was mine, but it, it was actually his. <laughs> I won't say his name, though, because that would be too much credit. He's called Carl. <laughs> he actually uh, got a book published just after it, and we all got together for his book launch. And it was really nice to meet many of these people for the first time, having... Yeah, just spent hours with them online and felt like I knew them. And like my mum and dad, who used to come on to watch me, felt like they knew some of these poets from Oxford. And it was really cool. It was really Really cool. Really good. Really good. So you really got to practice and learn your craft through the whole COVID period doing this. In as much as you could, you know, in as much as was possible. Yeah, I don't want to, I'm like come across like I believe I'm an expert now because I'm not, I'm still learning loads. But yeah, I mean, I definitely was better at the end of COVID than the beginning, which was an achievement I yeah. felt in the context. Absolutely. So then COVID finally ends. And so you stand start going back to, did you go back to the open mic thing? Did you then, were you sort of putting yourself up for gigs? Or I think you did competitions, yeah. didn't you? Like you started entering competitions. Yeah. yeah so my seventh gig was the semi-final of the best new act at the Bath Comedy <laughs> Festival. So, yeah, I was really lucky. I did really well in competitions. I think because you tend to do a short set, you know, seven minutes or something. Don't sell yourself um, short. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was either that, Alison, or it's because I was the best. I don't well. know why it was. <laughs> it might have been because I was the funniest. We don't know, do we? But um, I did well in these competitions. And, of course, then you do get... A few people, you know, would notice and give you a gig. And it's all, every gig is an advert for the next gig, really. Because yeah. most comedians, like I do now, run nights or, you know, infl- help people book nights or talk to other comedians. So everyone is a sort of potential advocate. Yeah. And we all sort of help each other because when you see a good act, I run a night now in Farringdon in Oxfordshire. And if I see a good act out on the circuit, you know, I think, oh, thank God for that. That's another one I can bring to my gig. So people are genuinely interested to find funny comedians because there's plenty of the other kind out there. (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) there's loads of funny ones as well. But you do get, I mean, you get loads of people as well, like, People who go, oh, my husband, he'd be an amazing stand-up comedian. He's so funny. And then you meet this guy and you think, You're like, okay, <laughs> all right. So what I know now is that you love him very much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. So like, how now? How does it feel now? Do it, like doing this for a living, you know, making a living at it versus kind of where you were at. Like, what's the difference in how you feel? Well, I actually was quite poorly. About once a year when I was an accountant, I would have to go to bed because I was so stressed. And I don't have to do that anymore, which is odd because you'd think this would be quite stressful, but it's not. Because it's the right thing for you, doing something Yeah, it's adrenaline. 
Yeah. But you know when, you know, like on the, you know, like on the X Factor, when they go to uh, the contestants just before they're about to go on stage, they go, so how are you feeling? And the contestant <laughs> goes, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. And they're clearly shitting themselves. But the <laughs> difference between excitement and nervousness is a, is a, mm-hmm. is a cigarette paper, it's a, it's isn't a it? It's all about yeah. mindset. And if you are excited rather than terrified, <laughs> or if that's the narrative in your head, mm. it doesn't make you ill. I've yeah. discovered, whereas I actually was quite scared quite a lot of the time when I was in business because, you know, you had to make X million of revenue every year to keep yeah. your job. I was a single parent, so that was quite important. Mm. And, you know, it, you had to go out and win it afresh every year. So even if you were good at sales, good at delivery, it, it always felt like it might just fall away yeah. magically. I don't yeah. know. I never felt safe. And then the politics of it, I never felt safe in an environment where... So that's the other thing about comedy, not as an art form, but as a community. It's quite a straightforward community. People mm. talk quite straight because it's... It, there's no reason not to, I no, guess. Yeah, I yeah. think we tend to talk in a roundabout way when we feel we need to do that. Mm. But I never felt safe in the commercial world because I felt like I didn't quite know. And, and actually at the end of my career, when I really felt out of place, it was partly because I was in, in an environment where I didn't entirely feel that I knew what was going on around me and it made right. me feel unsafe. Yeah. So... All of these things you're different. describing, it's um, you know, and I, I, you know, I, I experienced a lot of that myself in uh, in my old career in life. But a lot of the people that I work with have similar challenges, and and it, like me and you, has an effect physically on them, on their bodies, because they're trying to manage the stress mm. that comes from being Actually. in an environment that's not the right fit, or or being in a role that's not the right fit. Just you know that that misalignment causes problems physically. Which you know, it does. yeah, yeah. And actually, on the the last but one of those crashes, I went to bed, and I thought, "Ah, oh, well, we've been here before. What will happen now is you won't remember your own name, and you can't eat, and you can't do anything for twenty four hours. And then you'll get out of bed, you're going to work, you'll totally declutter your diary, your." You prioritise seeing friends and family, you'll mm. start exercising and you'll be fine for about a year <laughs> till it happens again. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, that's not what happened. On the penultimate time, I went to bed and 24 hours later, I still couldn't get out of bed. Wow. And on the last time it happened, I couldn't get on the train to go to work because I was so anxious. Yeah. And... Actually, even a year later, I used to get the Jubilee line out through London. I was going into London for something completely different, a gig or a friend thing or something, I can't remember. I had to get on the Jubilee line and all of a sudden I felt quite PTSD'd up, you know. Yeah. It was really it was really quite remarkable. So I mean it's I'm not sort of blaming anyone for that. No. It's just a it's just a bad fit if your yeah. body is saying to you 
I don't mm. like this. Mm-hmm. And you're going, okay, we'll have a day off. We'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> that's, that's not, yeah. re- that's not, not a, really a good answer, really is it? it? No. And you could do it for so long. You could, like you said, you could sustain it for so long. And eventually, it, it you know, it really starts to have very strong negative effects. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, and, and, and I think it's, it's one of the... It's one of the sure signs that change needs to happen in some shape or form, you know, and it could be from a personal point of view. It doesn't necessarily have to be from a work perspective, depending on what people are struggling with or feeling stressed about. But if your body starts to break down and it just doesn't, you know, and it gets harder and harder to push yourself through it, uh, you know, it, it, that's a sure sign that the time time is ready. You're ready, ready to start thinking about, okay, what kind of change is going to feel good and sort this out yeah because i think for some people like it's imbalance that's the problem like mm. you know when they redress the balance they start exercising and spending time yeah. with friends and eating good food and sleeping properly they're they're okay again mm. whereas for me it was a bit deeper than that because i even when i made all of those adjustments on the final attempt yeah i still had this nagging feeling that i was in the wrong place and I wasn't the only one that knew that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not a nice feeling. <laughs> no. So now, by contrast, you kind of feel, how do, you, how do you feel getting out? You can clearly get out of bed in the morning and feel good. I can get out of bed very late in the morning. Oh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so you'll be up late gigging. Okay, yeah. yes. So that's the other thing is that the commercial world or the corporate world, you know, office life, does tend to favour the lark over the night owl. Mm. And there's some evidence that larks in general, people who naturally enjoy getting up early and Mm -hmm. going to bed early, tend to earn more. And I'm not bloody surprised because (laughs) the corporate day is, you know, archetypally eight till six or something. It's not midday till midnight, which is where I like to do my work. Mm. But now, yeah, so now I can... Go to my own body's rhythm, which sounds a bit woo-woo, but it's really important, actually. I can also wear what I like, which again sounds trivial, but wearing Mm -hmm. that bloody awful. (laughs) I mean, I must admit, you know when you're on a call with someone and you're supposed to look at them, but you look at yourself all the time? (laughs) I've been doing that. I'm just going to cut my dreadlock off because it's irritating the life out of me. Look at that. Yeah, that's better. <laughs> right. Um, this one's too long as well. Let's be honest. Take that, that off as well. See? And you right. can do this. And you can do your own hair. No, well, your your before you know, and after photos, which, which will be shared as part of this, I just think are amazing. Like the difference. Oh, you just you. look like a different person. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't have a lot of cosmetic work done at the same time. <laughs> that's in my set. People have to come and hear about that. But... um. Yeah, I think some of this peripheral stuff, like what you wear, what time you get Mm. up, whether you're inside or outside, what sort of conversation your job involves. So, for example, one of the things that struck me when I started this new job was people don't really talk about money. They're not really interested in money. And I just thought everyone was interested. I I thought that's what everyone talked about all the time. Because in my old job, it was. Yeah. And if they weren't talking about money, they were alluding to how much money they they got. You know, they were talking about cars or ski chalets or private schools or something that inherently involved having loads of money. Mm. And I've got nothing against people having loads of money. I'm all for it. But I do 
find it a bit narrow as a topic of conversation for mm. your entire working life. And I had a friend actually who said she was Danish and she used to commute to Canary Wharf from Copenhagen once a week. Oh, wow. And I used to do the same, but from Gloucestershire. And her commute was shorter than mine. Wow. Because she'd fly into City Airport. <laughs> and she said that in Copenhagen, her friends talk about, how can we have more time? You know, what changes can we make to have more time? But she said, I'm just flabbergasted by the UK because everybody wants more money. <laughs> Even people that have quite patently got enough money. <laughs> so, Yeah. Yeah, well, fascinating. So all in, you can wear what you want. You can have the kinds of conversations that you want. You can work to your own body's natural rhythm. You know, so it's really, it's the absolute ideal choice for you. All in. From a lifestyle point of view, it really is. And I think, you know, the biggest one is I can make stuff because I'm creative. Mm. And I can show off, you know, I can share it. (laughs) And and because actually I'm a bit childish and let's say childlike. It's childlike, a there you are. Yes, word. Yes. <laughs> I'm a bit childlike, and uh, I think we all are actually deep yeah. down. And to not have any sense of play. I mean, it was interesting when I did the course for the comedy. It was six weeks, seven till nine on a Wednesday, very close to where I worked. Mm. Of the six weeks, two weeks were a problem, and that was it. First time I'd had a hobby. She couldn't get to it because thirty years. And even then, even after my kids had left home and all the rest of it, two hours a week was a problem. Yeah, and that again was quite shocking to me because I Mm. I kind of thought, how can it be? How How can I be so poor at managing my own time? Yeah, but of course, when you're part of a system, you're not really managing your own time. You're managing your own connections with a bigger beast yeah yeah bigger entity and you've got to make it work so yeah I think having a lifestyle that suits your preferences but more importantly activities and goals that speak to something that matters to you yeah because I mean a lot of people think well comedy is just a laugh and it is but good comedy and bad comedy are very different very yeah absolutely Absolutely. the more good comedy we have the better our world is and when when the lockdown happened we all found out how important art was <laughs> yes we you know did. all those people that go oh art it's just arty farty it's just people doing their own thing well it's not it's people creating stuff that we yeah. all consume it's a business yeah yeah so you get to indulge all of your very natural creative talents and abilities and like you said be childlike and play so how can people find you because you're obviously you're gigging all the time. You've got different different oh, yeah. things coming up. Like, how can people find out more about you and find tickets to you know your various gigs? I've got a website called SamanthaDaytime.com. SamanthaDaytime.com, and on there, one of the tabs is gigs. That's always got my next thirty days of gigs okay. on. I do three or four a week, so I'm not exactly hard to track down. I'm all over the country. So most people, if they look at that, I will be near them soon. Near them somewhere. And if you put Samantha Daytime into Instagram this morning <laughs> or this afternoon, you'll find all sorts of new stuff on there, including me getting a bird out of my house. <laughs> 
Brilliant. Right. So at thedaytime.com, I will put the link to uh, your website and, and your Instagram and stuff in Thank the show notes so people can find you. But listen, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a blast. And I just think you've come up with a whole bundle of useful advice and ideas and perspectives for people. You know, so good. Thank you, well, thank I'm you. Very clever. <laughs> I, keep, I keep telling people they just sort of bloody listen. <laughs> so, for listeners, you know, thanks so much for tuning in. Hopefully, the you know the things that Samantha has shared have been really you know insightful. From you know how how to how to approach things like humiliation and or, or, or like taking that beginner's mind approach. Uh, she's still cutting her hair. <laughs> Um, you know, and or, or just the, really the value of really disciplined baby steps in order to start moving towards what it is you really are, you know, you want to create. Um, so thank you for listening. And, uh, you know, from a personal perspective, I totally believe in your ability to go after whatever it is you desire. So go do your thing. Thank you for listening today and I really hope that some of the insights that Samantha shared you found really helpful. I know when I first spoke to her and she told me about the concept of it's just humiliation, I genuinely thought it was genius because often, you know, when we're chasing big dreams and goals, it can feel frightening as hell and and really, really difficult and uncomfortable, which stops us ever taking a step towards those things. Whereas just applying that lens of, you know, it's it's just humiliation. I'm just going to have a go and I'm always going to try and entertain myself with it. Just adds a little lightness and might just help you make that all important step. Now, I think the other thing that Samantha talked about was the power of really disciplined baby steps. So, you know, rather than thinking about the goal as this great big sort of end nth degree thing, breaking it down to the smallest possible step that can really help because it stops your brain fighting you on it. It prevents the resistance that we often feel. So if you can find this very smallest, easiest thing that you can do that just moves you incrementally forward, have a go at that because the more you do that, the more you build momentum. And before you know it, you're well on the way to, you know, achieving whatever it is you, you're after. So thank you so much for listening today. If you have any questions at all, or, you know, you have a perspective you'd like to share, please do get in touch. I would love to hear from you. And if you know anybody that you think would really benefit from listening to this podcast and, uh, and Samantha's story, please do share the podcast link. So share the love. Um, so until next time, take care and just know this, I genuinely believe in your ability to go after and realise whatever it is you dream of. So go do your thing. Thank you for listening today. I hope our time together has got you thinking about your own adventure in happiness. So please do get in touch. I'd love to hear more about your story. And why not join our Dream Chasers Unite community? There is nothing better than an adventure shared. Until next time, be brave and go create what you crave.